This is The Lonely Office, your playbook for navigating the messy line between work and life. Our topics are sourced from real anonymous workplace conversations happening within Glassdoor communities. From AI taking white-collar jobs to talking politics at work, we discuss timely work-life issues so you don't have to brave the professional world alone. Did I tell you this story that bubbled up about Emma? No. No. She's mid-20s engineer. She's making six figures, doesn't have any debt. Not bad. Nice. Sign me up for that, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, you could even say that Emma is at the zenith of her career. She was in line for a promotion that would make her one of the highest paid employees at her company. Wow. However, underneath this shiny success story, something very real was going on. Emma's personal relationships were a freaking disaster. Mm. She started experiencing health problems from overwork and stress. Mm. She felt like she was losing her identity in her job. It's like she's almost addicted to the hamster wheel. You know what I'm saying? Yep, been there. Well, the only thing that she had to lean on during this time was this idea she's been obsessed with for years. Let's hear it. She loved, always has, doing makeovers for her friends. And in fact, this wasn't just a hobby. She was so good that friends would ask her to do the makeup for weddings and events. Oh, wow. They're pretty serious stuff. That's a big deal. Yeah. She starts getting some momentum and she even ends up hiring some of her friends to help because she keeps getting more and more requests. Something's building here. Emma thought she had something here. She was inspired by other on-demand platforms and she thought maybe she had something like an Uber for makeovers concept. I would use that right now. (laughs) It's possible. Very possible. But then something happened. In fact, it happened. Not the makeover thing, the promotion Ah. for the engineering job. Oh. Yeah, the one she was waiting for. The one she worked so hard for, she got the offer. Great news, right? She should be thrilled. Emma was not thrilled. In fact, before she officially accepted the promotion, she gets in her car and she takes this long drive out into the snow. I've been there. You're like, I got to take a drive. And she's driving and she does something for the first time in a long time. She stops the hamster wheel in her head, and instead, she just decides to take a breath and reflect. She says, why is it that when I'm supposed to feel so happy, so accomplished with my job and career, do I feel so hollow and empty? That really hit her when she asked herself that. And I don't know if it was the comfort of driving. I don't know if it was the snow. Matt and Leah, I don't know if it was the holiday nostalgia, because I'm feeling it right now. (laughs) But- Emma really did have a revelation in all seriousness. She decided at that moment she was going to quit her job and start anew. Oh, wow. Fresh start. Here we go. We got a great story here. Man, I can't wait to get to this stuff. It is. It's funny you mentioned that you've had the experience of getting into the car on a snowy December day, decision-making time. I vividly recall being 22, a little over a year out of college, and deciding whether I wanted to make the leap to New York, which was a bit of a a new business venture opportunity Mm. decision for me. And I got in the car, and it was slush, sleet, and snow, and I was listening to Bob Seger (laughs) against the wind. Oh, my God. Shout out to Michigan. (laughs) Shout out to Detroit. Bob Seger, let's go. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. I'm sorry. Against the wind. I love that song. (laughs) Against the wind. Against the wind. Oh, my God. No bells. I'm sorry. (laughs) 
this moment though, I know we're, we all had these moments, but in all seriousness, I know people listening right now, we can laugh about it in retrospect, kind of looking back, but those moments are serious. I've sat in that car between jobs. You really have to have those moments where you're reflecting on, do I need to make a change? Whether it's your personal life, whether it's work, those are very private moments. Those are very quiet moments. Good for her. But there's also layers when you make a decision like that, right? It's all about sort of stepping back, taking a breath. I know. I'm scared for her. I'm like, can't you take that raise in promotion and still keep doing it on the side until you're extra, extra sure? <sighs> yeah, that's the first instinct, right? Yeah. Look, I think everybody would agree Emma's anxiety and wavering on this decision, although it seems like she committed towards the end of the story, it's totally easy to understand. It's daunting. In my experience, I found that there are two types of company founding. So if we're speaking to Emma and this new venture of hers, there are two types I've experienced in my life. There's the ones that start in your head that you mull over for a few weeks or months at a time, share with your closest friends seeking some validation, but then they fizzle out just as easily mm. as they were inspired, right? And I've, by that measure, founded hundreds of those companies, and I'm sure others have as well. <laughs> but then there are the other ones that actually cross the Rubicon, that go from an idea you think about in fits and starts and roll into a course of permanent action. And by that measure, I've incorporated and founded three of those companies. Two of them I sold, one for a good return on investment for myself and my employees, and the other for a great return on investment for myself, employees, investors. And the third, I shut down. And I only mention that because I have some skin in the game on this. I have some experience in the space. So I think with Emma's story, what we want to kind of lead into today is we have the end of the year looming where we might be going yeah. to evaluation mode of sorts, both for our work selves and our personal selves. Yeah. How did we do on our new year? We're getting reflective. Reflective, right? So we thought we'd study one of the propositions that may be on the minds of many professionals like Emma as they slog at their corporate jobs. Should I quit and launch my business startup? Emma's story is a great story. And Matt, I think the way you summarized that was really great. The two types of ideas and how many of those ideas and how many co-founders and founders out there, 2 a.m., they've got the cure for this. They got the business is going to change all businesses. Seven yeah. o'clock when the coffee kicks in and clarity kicks in, you realize, wait a second, <laughs> I'm going back to work. But you're right, there are those few, and maybe Emma's is one of those, that starts proving to you that there is maybe some legs here, that it can cross that Rubicon, as you talk about. And I know there are people listening right now. I've been there. Matt, you've been there. Leah, I'm sure you've been there where you had that. Maybe you haven't. Who knows? I don't think I have as many business ideas as you guys seem to have. <laughs> no, this is a perfect perspective, though, right? Ideas are ideas, right? So everybody's had that idea or two or three. I do. That's I've right. had ideas. There you go. Fine. I have not pitched them on Shark right. <laughs> But they're in there. You could pitch them. You're ready. <laughs> Absolutely not. But Matt, what, what I was trying to get to was, what's the backdrop of 2023? What kind of world is Emma facing as she's on the cusp of making this decision? I'd love to tell Emma right now that timing is perfect. It's rosy. The market is going to embrace you and your venture. But the truth is, 2023 was probably the most difficult year on record for startups, at least in the last decade. And this is not from my perspective. There's a recent article in the Times. It's called From Unicorns to Zombies, Tech Startups Run Out of Time and Money. And that pretty much summarizes what occurred in 2023. 3,200 private venture-backed US companies went out of business this past year. Those companies, those 3,200 in aggregate, had raised 
over $27 billion in venture funding. Yikes. So that's just incineration of $27 billion. And these are names that many of us have heard of, right? Of course, we know WeWork. Wow. They had yeah. raised more than $11 billion in funding. There's the healthcare startup. Some of us may have heard of Olive AI. Convoy is a, a freight startup for making shipments via trucking more efficient. You have Vive, a home construction startup, Hopin. Some of these names are very familiar. And all four of the ones I just mentioned went bankrupt. It's a very difficult backdrop. And I would say for anyone entering right now, you should be entering with eyes wide open. That said, I think a lot of entrepreneurs who built businesses before during difficult times, I launched my first startup during the great financial crisis, not even knowing what the implications were, because at that point, I wasn't really raising money. I was just building a business trying to make money because I wasn't raising money. The interest rate environment and some of the other economic factors didn't hit me as hard building that company. But nonetheless, I would say it is a difficult environment. The one that you started during the recession, was that your good grade or zilch company? That was the good grade one. <laughs> and I think that's a good indicator, right? Yeah. Since it was my first go around, I didn't really factor the macro conditions, but I just was disciplined by virtue of what I was hearing. And so at the time we were developing software, trying to sell it. No, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's not good enough until it was good enough. You mentioned WeWork and all the different examples with like tons of billions of dollars. I don't, these investors, by the way, to be able to sell that, what a great storyteller. That guy's like, yeah, let me build a utopian society in rented space. Trust me. <laughs> but there's a difference here and there's a hope for Emma, right? Because Emma seems to be playing to the practicality of recession or practicality of neighborhood mm. and community where it's like, look, yes, you could go at this time where things are getting tight and money's getting tight, even for people getting married or having events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they could go third party. They could pay a high premium to that company or there's Emma and Emma could still charge, but she can undercut that high premium business that has to run, that has to overcharge because they got X amount of employees. Maybe Emma, knowing it or not knowing it, is strategically being a little bit practical in these difficult times. Like what you were saying, you can create during difficult times if you're serving the needs of folks who are finding it difficult. Yeah. The truth is Emma probably wouldn't need institutional investor money. And, right. and I think we're going to get into that in the, the second section here where we talk about how to do it right if you're going to quit and start. And there's the whole pathway of doing a bootstrapped venture. You're using your own funds or VC. And yeah, by all means, like you can build a very profitable business without taking on third-party money. But even in doing that and asking yourself those questions about how you get funded, are you at a space now where you're developing a philosophy? When you see the momentum start becoming real, you cross that Rubicon, things become successful and viable. Don't you have to develop a philosophy first? In my experience, there are certain philosophies that may work better with entrepreneurialism in the sense that they lower the perceived risks associated with standard, let's call it cost-benefit frameworks. So let's get specific here. I think it's very popular nowadays and in vogue to kind of adopt a stoic philosophy of stoicism. And I do think this like stoic philosophy does play a role in you taking on risk a little more easily. Last I checked, we haven't discovered the Ozempic of life longevity <laughs> drugs. This world is fleeting. What are we really foregoing? What's the real opportunity cost to the decisions we make in a fleeting world? And this is something, by the way, iconic entrepreneurs we're all familiar with. This is a philosophy they've adopted. I think Steve Jobs, you could probably call him a stoic. There was a parable he shared in his famed Stanford commencement address. I've listened to when I launched my first startup, and it really inspired me. And I know a number of entrepreneurs have been inspired by this quote. And I was going to read it out here just to share this stoicism he has, kind of existentialism of sorts. When I was 17, 
I read a quote that went something like, if you live each day as if it were your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. It made an impression on me. And since then, for the last 33 years, I've looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself, if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I'm about to do today? And whenever the answer has been no for too many days in a row, I know I need to change something. And so this almost like stoic recognition that he's going to die, it just changes the cost-benefit analysis. Some people are fans of Rumi, kind of a Sufi poet, die before you die. There's just this philosophy that I've seen a lot of my friends and colleagues who've launched businesses, when they adopt that prism, it just changes the calculus altogether in the way you take on risk. And I think it's to your benefit. This is all part of a reflective moment. I don't want to overlook the fact that when we have those moments, wherever you're coming from, whatever your perspective is, whether it's philosophical or you have a spiritual journey, it usually leads to a decision that is based on meaning and purpose. It's not just tactical or transactional. Listen, being a borderline hypochondriac, I think every day is my last. (laughs) And and by the way, no, here's the thing. And the benefit of that was I've always been in a position where I'm like, well, if today's the day that, you know, the bird flu does this, am I doing what I want to do? Yeah. Do I want to be going to that job every single day? You might say yes, but if you don't ask the question, you don't know. I just always wanted to check that off my list of like, am I doing what I love? Yes, I'm good. I mean, I think everyone has asked themselves that question and have come to a point where they're not happy with what they're doing day to day and need a change. But to Matt's point, I don't know if starting your own business is necessarily the change that's right for everyone. So for me, I don't think Mm. from a work-life balance perspective, I'm not sure it would be right for me. I now have a family, three children. I was not married and I did not have any children when I launched my first startup. And when I launched my second one, I had just gotten married. And when I launched my third one, I had only one child. If I look back and reflect, it's got incrementally more difficult as I've taken on more responsibilities. And so I'm sure a lot of people make this part of their calculus. I have a lot of loved ones I'm responsible for. I have more responsibilities myself. In your case, did that play a role? I think I'm kind of a risk-averse person. Mm. And also just to your point, I think, I mean, I really enjoy working in marketing. Yeah. Like, do I think I could be doing a better job than people I've worked for before if I was running the place? Yeah. Everyone's had that thought, I think. (laughs) But yeah, I don't think I've ever Mm. had that, I need to go out and and make this happen myself push that other people obviously have. You know, an interesting stat here to bring into this is that there's been a lot of recent articles and studies on the number of businesses and startups launched by immigrants Mm. versus native-born Americans. And immigrants in the U.S. are substantially more likely to start up businesses. Approximately 25% of U.S. startups have been created by immigrants. And it goes on to say that immigrants have founded 55% of businesses in the U.S. valued over $1 billion dollars mythological unicorn level, right? 80% of US unicorn companies have at least one immigrant founder or key team member. And so what's interesting is when you look at that stat and you think about this cost-benefit analysis and being risk-averse, I think there's something to say that if we make the assumption for a second, some of the immigrants starting these businesses are starting off with less. Maybe they have less to lose potentially. This philosophy that we've been talking about, like the stoic philosophy of sorts, you keep in good measure ultimately what you're really losing does play a role because by definition, if you don't have much, you're probably not as attached to the material wealth that others who've started off with more are. And it's 
easier as a result for you to take on that risk, launch the startup. So if I'm hearing this from Emma's perspective, if you're that person, if you're Emma in that car, but you're having that reflective moment, it sounds like if you're looking to go, hey, I'm going to change or I need to change or I'm going to leave my corporate gig, I'm going to start that business I've been thinking about. First, it sounds like you got to ask yourself, do you have a philosophy in place for how you view your life and your career and how they intersect? The other thing I'm hearing is, Leia, you mentioned this, asking, what are you willing to give up? What are some things that you're willing to concede? Are there things you're not willing to concede? When you say risk averse, maybe it's because risk averse sometimes might come off as, oh, you don't want to take chances. It's because I value X. That is a no-go for me. I can't ever put X in jeopardy. So it sounds like you have to ask yourself that. Matt, did you know kind of getting into that entrepreneurial zone, that there were just going to be different ramifications on your life? Did you learn by trial by fire? Or did you know like, hey, this is the life I'm leading. If you want part of this, you got to jump on this train. How did that go for you? I think it goes without saying, it's part of the the folklore of launching a startup these days that you're going to be over-dedicating time to the business at the cost of time for your health, your time with other loved ones and friends. And so I think that part of it but there's a truth there, though, Matt. I got an ice pack on my shoulder right now because I've had tension migraines for three weeks. I'm telling you, it's real. Every year, towards this time of year, when it's crunch time and I take on a new client and have my own business, there are stress implications. There's health implications. So I know there is folklore. It's real, though, right? It's a folklore for a reason. Yeah. There's a reason that why right. that folklore exists, right? And there's a reason why they tease startup founders that their co-founders are their you know, wives of sorts, right? You have your marital <laughs> wife and then you have your startup wife, right? I mean, there's reasons why those metaphors exist. It's real. And I just wanted to make the point that when you go through your first business cycle or first startup cycle, you acclimate and you learn these lessons. And I'll just give a very specific example. I have a number of colleagues who really prioritize their social relationships. What I mean by that is their first degree friends, let alone family, are sacrosanct. Mm. They'll respond to a text within minutes. Oh, wow. And Couldn't I, be me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm glad at least I'm, Leia's on my side, maybe on this one. But I'll tell you, every single startup, when I've gotten into execution mode, invariably, my friends know because weeks will pass before sometimes I'm responding to a text. And, and it's not that I don't value those friendships. It's that you go into uber prioritization mode, where it's like, I know I have X amount of time I have to put on getting this work done that has to get done that day to have a chance at surviving another day, frankly. And so any other attention is going to be dedicated towards, at this point, my wife and my kids and all the rest. You have to prioritize very difficult stuff. Certain items don't necessarily make it into the action list for that day. And I know a lot of my friends who are social animals, they could not do that. They're really brilliant people. They probably could do operate startups very effectively from a leadership perspective and professional perspective, but they're just not willing to be tenacious in the prioritization regard. So that's just a a simple example. And I think if you're that type of personality where you're going to think twice about that stuff, that too, you should consider before making the leap. You've reminded me, Matt, and I don't know if you're going to look at me differently after I tell this story, but... I love when you do stuff like this. (laughs) No, you're in the moment. Nah, I like it. Keep going. So you're you're going to ask Matt, he's going to think differently. Well, I don't know. After my second (laughs) son was born, my husband... He was working on a startup and he was really, really into it. And he was graduating from business school and he didn't have a real job. And I just had a second child. I mean, this was a, I don't want to say contentious point in our relationship, but there was a lot of back and forth because he 
was really all in and wanted us to move to a different country where neither of us were fluent in the language and really jump into this startup. And at the end of the day, he got a really great job offer. We ended up moving to San Francisco and he was also working on the startup behind the scenes, but eventually it failed. And maybe it wouldn't have if we had moved to a different country. Who knows how things Mm. would have gone differently. I mean, I'm usually all on board with whatever he wants to do, whatever. I'm like, go for it. New job, go for it. Business school, go for it. But this time was probably one of the only times where I was like, I don't feel good about this. Right. I don't think I'll disagree with Leah here. I mean, I've caused a lot of upheaval in that regard with my family. Just with the last startup, Fishbowl, there was a period of four years where I hauled them to San Francisco and then hauled them right back to New York. (laughs) It was within three years, if you can imagine that. I had a daughter at that point who was two years old. You know, there's daycare and whatnot. Yeah, especially with young kids, you get your little kid group. It's very difficult. <laughs> so there's the perspective of the founder of the business and how they perceive they're disrupting the lives of those around them. But then there's the perspective of the kids. It's hard for, particularly for me, to think from the perspective of the kid. My father was not an entrepreneur. And so I don't have the experience. But one of our topic researchers, we were talking with him, right? Aaron Z, his father yeah. was an entrepreneur and he made some really great points. And I have friends and colleagues of mine as well, whose mothers and fathers were entrepreneurs. And they just talk about some really glaring points. The company, for, for a lot of kids, particularly in the tough times, it feels that the company is coming before the family. Particular, I've been told by a number of friends that, and this is like non-venture-backed businesses when you're putting your own money that there are times where the kids felt that they were spending the business money. So if you're doing your own LLC, in the Mm. case of Emma, she's self-funding, her money is funding the business. And so the kids become very cognizant of that. And they, at times, will become conscious of everything they're spending, maybe acting as an impediment towards the growth of the family business, so to speak. Yeah. My grandfather was a farmer. It's not a tech startup. But that sort of sentiment is, I've heard from stories my mom has told me about growing up on a farm. The family and the business are kind of one and the same when you're growing up on a farm. Absolutely. It's funny. When you talk about those middle of the night ideas, Matt, going back to the beginning, where I was in New York, I was pursuing acting. I'm going to tell stories. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I'm going to be a storyteller. That is what fulfills me. I had this acting teacher. She wasn't a teacher. She owned the studio I was studying at. And she goes, if you want to be an entrepreneur in this space, actor, storyteller, whatever you want to do, you're going to have to give up family, oh. have to give them up. Hmm. When she told me that- You're like, sign me up. No way. <laughs> no, no, no way. The Sicilian family, but there's no way you're going to give that up. Yeah. No way. So then yeah. the question is, okay, at that moment, do you give up on the dream? I don't want to give up my family, but what is a way that I can do this incrementally to end up at this destination? I went from transitioning from touring to then, oh, a microphone, podcasting. I can be in one location. I can be around my family. You can choose family. You can choose career. You just might have to make some sacrifices and do it differently. Right. Just to pick which of your kids you love the most and dedicate the (laughs) the free time you have to that kid. Pick one child, everyone else, (laughs) you're gone. The lesson of this first theme we're hitting on is what are you willing to give up? So there's your philosophy, but ultimately that philosophy also informs what you're willing to give up. It's not always all or none, right? So the first Startup Social app that I launched, I moonlighted on it for a good eight months while I was still at my prior job at MTV Networks. 
only left full time once I had actually achieved some revenue in the bank from a few clients. What do those hours look like for you? I mean, yeah, I was working weekends and evenings. And so, yeah, you're, you're doubling up. I yeah. still took on, as a lot of folks do, credit card debt to get to where I needed to get. If you have the opportunity to moonlight before you quit, then go ahead and approach that. But let's be honest, there is financial anxiety. And that's part of it. We just got off the episode where, geez, if you're a Henry, you're a high earner, not rich yet, and you have financial anxiety in that scenario, imagine a scenario where you don't have the, <laughs> the paycheck, right? So financial anxiety is a real thing, and you're going to have to approach that in a more stoic fashion. Yeah. I have a good friend who's launched her startup while she was working at eBay. She had a pretty sweet job, actually, at eBay. I yeah. don't know. Maybe with my sort of... Uh, being gun shy to any sort of risk, I probably would have told her if she had asked me, I don't know, maybe you should never leave that job, but it all worked out. Yeah. At some point, you've got to take the leap or it's never going to happen, right? You do need to make that clean cut. Otherwise, you're going to fail because of the tether. You're not going to pursue it, pursue the, the business or the startup, I hate to use the word, as recklessly as mm. you would mm. if you still had that steady paycheck. I mean, you literally become, you know, I became an animal, like just going after clients. And I've always considered myself a bit of an introvert, but you better believe I was not shy, cold emailing and cold approaching and networking because it hit the bank account. And so if that's what it takes to unleash the animal in you to really go after the business, then yeah, you have to untether at some point. So you need that little bit of desperation, right? Yes, so here's a great example of that. I got recruited to a podcast production company. So when I talked about that big plan back in New York, I was like, oh, here's a step. I accepted that gig at the podcast production company. By the way, no health benefits. I went from having a place that had fully paid health benefits. And I have a family. I had a family of three at this time and family of five total, my wife, myself, and three kids. Then I was there and then something unexpected happened. After about a year, they said, listen, we invested in production. We thought this was going to be the thing we're cutting that side of the business. So after a year, their business, they were collapsing it. But I kept that relationship with the founder. And I said, well, you have eight clients still on board. Hmm. Can you give me a chance to sell them? And he said, go ahead. They're all yours. He made the introductions. And I ended up closing six out of eight. When you talk about Matt, that point of no return, like that was the thing where I was kind of like facing like crap, right. I don't do this. That maybe I was like, a, bro, I was in there right. like always be closing. Alec Baldwin, I'm walking in there. I'm like, coffee yeah. is for closers. I'm going crazy. I close them hard. And as soon as I Good did, that was, I'm going to make that real move and say, I am doing my own business. And that's why I started the LLC. The formality that I use in my kind of pathway to, to starting a venture is, is when I incorporate it. I'll actually delay the incorporation mm. as long as possible because I want to make sure that I'm serious about this. That the idea is battle-tested. It's been through a lot of friends, super critical. We'll talk about that in a second. Entrepreneurs are the worst people to get feedback on new ideas. They will just devastate <laughs> you and discourage you. And I'll tell you why, by the way, but we'll get to that in a second. So stay tuned. But I will delay the incorporation as long as possible for that reason. And then once I do, it's like I cross the Rubicon. I'm like, I'm all in. We're at the end of the year, the very symbolic, there's this metaphor of the end and then the new. You talked about that not incorporating as a practical matter. Is it also philosophical and metaphorical to you? If you give birth to something, you don't want to die. It's your Frankenstein. Uh, you don't want to put it to death. <laughs> prematurely that's pretty cool. Like that. I think that's part of it. It's funny you mentioned that. I don't think it's purposeful. But yeah, I mean, in many ways, when you reach that formality of putting it out there legally, but also to yourself, it's a point of vindication. You don't want to see it die. And 
this part I'm about to say is as trite as it can be. I mean, you can listen to any entrepreneur or CEO talk. Resilience is the number one trait you need, bottom line, as a founder, as a small business. You just need to be absolutely resilient. And so that resilience starts day one from incorporation because that's day one of, hey, this thing is legit. I try to delay that as long as possible because I know the moment I incorporate, that's when the work starts. I got to be like a dog and I got to be resilient, but it's necessary. And so, yeah, I think that's part of it. You're very mild mannered, but I can tell you got a fire, bro. <laughs> like you're fired up. Now you got that Midwest, you got that Jordan S, you got that flu game in you, man. Oh you got gosh. that flu game in you. It's like bro no, I just, I don't. <laughs> Oh man. You got that fire, bro. Hey, listen, by, by the way, if you're listening now, please, you can give me all the hell you want. Go to the Glassdoor app. There should be a bowl developed called the Lonely Office. You could say, hey, Aaron, stop saying bro. Right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. But anyways, Matt, real quick, you said stay tuned. What were you getting at? Who's the worst? Oh, yeah. You said was entrepreneurs are the worst for taking right. criticism. Is that what the point was? or For being critical, right? So, okay. We talked about the the decision framework of sorts or the criteria you should think about before jumping out, right? The personal ramifications, relationship dynamic ramifications. And if you decided after all that, that you kind of fit the bill, checked off the marks, how do you go about starting? Is you start with quitting? Okay, let's assume you quit. So how do you start thinking about this new business? And one thing I'll tell you, I've learned this because I have a lot of entrepreneurial friends. When you have the initial idea, share it with close friends who will give you authentic feedback and constructive critical feedback, but do not share it with someone that you absolutely do not know who's like just a second degree or third degree entrepreneur who's coming in fresh to an idea. Because I'll tell you, those entrepreneurs are going to shit on your idea, no matter what it is. Mm. When I've been approached by people with ideas or products early on, it's not that I won't critique it, but I'll constructively critique it. I'll be like, okay, this is where I think you could go, right? If they've just started, you got to give it all the wings it can have just so he can he or she can test it. And I can tell you the vast majority of my friends even, and entrepreneurs, they do not do that. They take huh. the benefit of the 10 years of experience that they've had, and it doesn't fit whatever model or framework of scalability or whatever other buzzword framework they think they know. And they'll just take a big <laughs> on it. And I'm not Haters saying hate, Matt. That sometimes that's not <laughs> deserved. It's the wrong timing. Mm. So that's a strong level of recommendation I have particularly if it's your first idea and you've been working on a few months, at that point, don't take it there. That's a great point. So if your mom says, you should talk to my friend John about this, he's, don't do it. I don't think so. No, <laughs> no, don't. You want to find a mentor you can trust and that, that doesn't happen easily. Well, I made that mistake talking to the acting studio lady because she kind of was like, yeah, this is the only way to make it in this business. Destroy your family, live alone and live a sad life. Wait a sec. And, and and by the way, I'm glad I didn't listen. But the mistake was, I actually, for a while, I guess there's no other way I have to live in solitude. <laughs> like, and by the way, some people do that, but I'm so glad I didn't listen because to your point, Matt, I started really assessing and asking those critical questions going, hey, there's a different way here. It might be a different path. It's not the traditional path. That's the other thing too, is there's no one way. Right. For some reason, when you get into the advice world, people are going to sell you on a way that has to be done. And I found that ultimately there's a lot more ways than they're telling you. And as long as you can make it work for you, do it. So that's the first consideration to have when you're starting. I think the second one is there's this concept of MVP. You can MVP a product, but you can't MVP the business. Oh, tell me what that means again. What, what does MVP mean? minimum viable product, right? Right. So minimum viable product. And so 
what you'll see is a lot of early entrepreneurs conflating the idea of building a minimum viable product with, I'm going to do the minimum viable business. No, like the business, mm-hmm. you can't circumvent that. You need to study it, study the market, Got do it. the research, do the user interviews. There's no shortcutting or minimum viable business formulation. You'd be surprised to see how many first-time entrepreneurs actually conflate that with like, oh, but this is like minimum viable product. No, the product is once you have the business figured out and the market, and you're putting out your first product or service into the marketplace, then you can build that product as cheaply and efficiently as possible just to test and then iterate. There's all sorts of shorthand tactics trying to shortcut the idea of studying the business or the process, and you can't do that. So you're saying there's no shortcut, like it's putting something out there and not taking care of the business side of things. Yeah, example. So with Fishbowl, we did 200 user interviews of professionals as part of launching the first product. That was establishing, is there a need for this type of platform to post semi-anonymously? How would they post? We did so many user interviews and that was all part of the business opportunity stage. When we built the product, the first version of the product took around five weeks to build the cheapest short version. And so that was a true MVP. And then this probably belongs in the in the first camp, honestly, of motivation. There's a, a well-published study now we mentioned before, and it's titled Failing Just Fine, Assessing Careers of Venture Capital-Backed Entrepreneurs. It looked at 5 million resumes. It turns out would-be founders experience faster career trajectories. So after exiting their startups, even failed founders obtain jobs about three years more senior than their right before founding peers. It's a fairly well-done study. I have a number of friends who launched startups. They failed by any means. You measure that failure by went bankrupt or they you know, returned money to investors or they never got better than 1x revenue. They found really good placements in the private market, right? They were able to leverage their experience for really good ranks and titles at the new companies. Opposite of a cautionary tale, it's a bit of a motivating factor where it's like you could go out there, fail, and still find a graceful landing. So going back to Emma, in her case, maybe it's something where she eventually needs to get investors. I don't even know that world. What if there is someone now who's listening who's like, their idea isn't just running their own podcast consulting shop or their Uber for makeup and they only have five employees. What if it's an idea that really not only has legs, but has a real scalable potential? What do you do? I don't think everybody sees it this way, but the way I've seen it is your best shot at success is putting yourself in one of two camps. If you find yourself in the muddy middle, you're going to be in danger, in my experience. The first camp is extreme bootstrap, and that's where you operate a very small team. You're very efficient. In the case of Emma, you know maybe she figures out a working arrangement for these other makeup artists. It's a small business, and you attempt to make money from day one. There's none of this like we're going to subsidize the acquisition of customers and we're not going to get profit until year 10, <laughs> like some of these institutional. No, no, we got to pay bills. <laughs> I got a mortgage to pay. That's a really viable model. And that discipline of making money from day one and, and making sure you have your margins figured out, if you fit in that camp, then that's great. And you should choose and go that direction. And that's extreme bootstrap. Yeah. The second is extreme venture capital. And the extreme VC, it's basically just requires a tremendous amount of capital and money from investors. And typically you have a moonshot mission that you're trying to achieve either because the market is huge or the science behind it is very difficult to achieve. And in that case, you just have to raise a lot of money. And in many cases, if you choose that camp, you don't have to make money from day one. And I would argue in that game, it's not about making money from day one. It's about either growing the user base as fast as you can or growing revenue first above profit and just getting the business as big as possible. 
at least historically, the market has always rewarded one or the other more so than the third, which is somewhere in the middle, right? This kind of muddy middle where you're neither kind of going hardcore bootstrap or extreme VC. You're, you take on VC and this venture capital institution money, but then you realize that the market opportunity wasn't as large as you thought it was. And then the board's mad because they realize the business can't grow as fast as they thought it could grow. And so that middle is a really tricky place to be in. You really don't want to be in that middle. And having the two startups that were successful, I would say one was in the bootstrap department where I didn't raise any money. And then the third was in at least the mission state for which was quite large, just like kind of extreme VC. I would just recommend you kind of choose one or the other from my experience when deciding to launch that business. But from the, in general, the story of Emma, Matt, I feel like you're always going to be on the side of give it a shot. Don't die without knowing if it was going to work out. You can always go back to your corporate job. I think definitely with Emma, a well-to-do professional, she's making strong six-figure salary, no debt. It's a no-brainer. And she started seeing some signs of success with her love of makeup and makeovers. She had a skill set. She wasn't just doing it for fun. People were saying like, hey, not only is that good, I'm going to pay you to do my wedding. So like, those are all signs saying like, maybe you should consider this. Yeah. And I think the final sign, we've talked about this Ikigai Japanese framework, right? For choosing your vocation in life on the last episodes, aligning everything from what you're good at versus what the world needs and these other considerations. There's a phrase, good quest versus bad quest, you'll hear founders talk about the startup founders Ikigai framework. A good quest is one that makes the future better than our world today. So that's where you choose to do something or build a company. It could be in climate change or something along those lines. A bad quest is one that doesn't improve the world much at all or even makes it worse. And then the third is probably the one that's most common that founders go after. It's the easy one, which is it's typically more a straightforward quest with a well-understood playbook and a sure payoff. So that's the example of, of a founder maybe who's built something in a certain space, let's say like a t-shirt business in e-commerce before and sold it. And he can go ahead and do the same thing, but instead of t-shirts, you know, he goes into like shorts or another category and it's like a sure thing. You know, he knows the playbook or she knows the playbook and they do it for pretty much a monetary payoff. I think there's something to be said as a final decision here. Emma, I think, has maybe chosen well for her first one because she's passionate about it and that's good. But you do want to try to align that a bit or understand what is it that you're going after. Probably more so if you're a second or third time entrepreneur, are you playing into the good quest or bad quest? I got to be honest, I think Emma is in store for an amazing 2024. If I don't talk to both of you, by the way, because we're taking a holiday break here, yeah, wishing you a happy holiday, happy new year. Matt, listen, we may close on this. We may not. Did you send me something? Yeah. yeah. I, I, you sure? I think we can skip that. Can we, can yeah, we do it? Can, Matt, just for me. Oh man, you want me to perform? No, I'm just in the holiday. I, I'm feeling nostalgia. I'm with Emma. We're talking about changing lives. Maybe we can end with a quote here. Is that possible? There's a poem by Matthew Arnold that's called The Buried Life. He's an English poet. It reads, but often in the din of strife, there rises an unspeakable desire. After the knowledge of our buried life, a thirst to spend our fire and restless force in tracking our true and original course. And I've always just been inspired by that quote. This idea of a buried life spoke to like those motivations and desires hidden in your true authentic self. And you just ignore them. Emma ignores them until the opportunity arises for her to go after it and find out her true original course. So a bit of a, an inspirational ode for the professional to consider as they enter the end of the year on whether they want to 
quit it all and go for their true and original course. Hey, you made it. Thanks for tuning in to The Lonely Office. If you like what you heard, follow us on all major podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode. And make sure and tap five stars and leave a review. I know everyone says it, but it actually helps others like you discover the show. Remember, the topics you hear us talk about on the show are sourced from Glassdoor communities, where professionals are having candid conversations about their careers anonymously with others in their industry. To be part of that conversation, download the Glassdoor app. And when you're in the app, make sure and join the Lonely Office Bowl. That's where we are. When you're there, you can suggest a topic idea or an episode idea, or you can make it more formal and email us at thelonelyoffice at glassdoor.com. We'll catch you next time. 